Our scripture reading this morning is taken from Exodus chapter 20, and I'm going to be reading from verses uh, 1 through uh, 15. You can follow along. If you have Bibles, you can follow along on the screen or uh, in your bulletins as well. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments." You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But on the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates." For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, we need uh, to hear your voice here this morning. Uh, more than any other voice, Lord. And there are many voices that often compete for uh, our attention, for our minds, and ultimately for our hearts. So we pray, Father, that we would hear your voice through your word, that your voice that spoke the creation into existence would speak words of life uh, to our hearts here this morning. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. I want you to think back uh, for a minute to when you were a, a kid and you were growing up in your, in your parents' house. And when you were kids, uh, and when we were all were kids, we know that our parents would give us rules that we were uh, supposed to live by, right? They were rules of the house that we had to live in conformity to. And immediately we began to bristle against them, right? We didn't want to follow the rules that mom and dad gave us. And uh, we saw them as oppressive in, at times stealing away our freedom, right? And this often largely becomes our perspective, not just on our parents' rules, but on rules in general. We tend to not like them. We tend to bristle against them. But then what happens is we grow up, right? We start to think differently about life. We start to think differently about our things. And then we have our own kids. For some of you that have your own kids, you probably know what I'm talking about. Because all of a sudden what happens is you begin to sound like your parents. That those rules that you couldn't stand having when you were a kid are now these things that are coming out of your mouth. These things that you swore you'd never be or things that you swore you'd never say, you are now saying those things. Uh, and, And we have a different thought about rules. We realize that what motivated the rules that our parents gave us was not their attempt to steal away all the joy and fun in life, but those rules were motivated by love. 
And of course, they told us that, right? They told us, we're doing this because we love you, and we just roll our eyes and never really understand it, often until we have our own kids. Now, we would do a lot better culturally if we began to think about rules in this way. If we began to not see them just as means of oppression, but we see them as means to which we can live life. And this is especially true about God and the commandments that he has given to us in the scriptures. You see, these laws, these Ten Commandments that we are talking about all summer are laws that are based on love. They tell us about love. They tell us how to love God and how to love others. But they were also given to us in love. Originally, they were given to God's people after an incredibly amazing act of love and faithfulness, that Exodus event where God freed them from their enslavement, and he takes them out of their enslavement and gives them, gives them these laws of love. And the same is true for you and I. God rescues each one of us in the gospel. He rescues us in love And then he teaches us how to live in love. You see, love is the principle that's behind all of these commandments. We express our love back to God when we choose to live lives in conformity to them. And when we do, we display to the world that is watching the uniqueness of what a life lived in relationship with God really looks like. This week's commandment is is you shall not steal. And uh, what I'd like to do is really look at three things about this commandment. First, something that this commandment establishes. And then I'd like to look at kind of the narrow definition or the negative definition of what this commandment means. And then the positive or the broad definition of what we mean by this. But the first thing is it does is it establishes something. It establishes private property, or it establishes the fact that having private property is acceptable and good in God's eyes. Now, I want you to think about the original context of of when God first gave these commandments. When they were first given, they were given to a people group, the Israelites, who had just been uh, saved and rescued after 400 years of enslavement. See, for 400 years, they, uh, they themselves owned nothing. Instead, they were the ones that were owned. They were the, the private property, if you will, uh, of the Egyptian empire. And so, when, when God rescues them and brings them out of their enslavement, they need to begin to build the infrastructure of their society. What would they live according to as a nation? And that's so much of what these Old Testament laws are doing. They are establishing how this people group ought to live and function. They establish how God wanted his people to live in a theocratic economy and a theocratic society. So at the very simplest, what the Eighth Commandment does is it establishes that it is okay for you and I to own stuff. Private, personal property is something that is acceptable to God. What isn't acceptable is the stealing of that property from another person. Working hard to buy and own things is an honorable thing in the eyes of God. 
Acts chapter 5 tells a, a really unique story about two characters named Ananias and Sapphira. The book of Acts talks about a unique time in the church when everybody was really moved by God's Spirit to be uh, incredibly generous with their possessions. And what the book of Acts tells us is that, that, that the, those in the church would get together and they would sell everything they'd have, they'd bring it into commonality and give it to those who are in need. And Ananias and Sapphira didn't want to be outdone. Everybody else was doing this, so we ought to do it as well. So what they did is they sold a piece of property that they'd had, and they chose to give the proceeds of that property to the church. But what they did is they deceptively held back some of that profit and some of those proceeds for themselves. God's judgment fell upon them in a really unique way because they did this, and it struck fear in everyone who witnessed it. Now, some have looked at that story and said, well, that must mean it's not okay for all of us, if we're believers in Jesus Christ, to own things or to own personal property. But they were judged not because they owned things. They were judged because they withheld profit or they tried to keep that ownership for themselves. They were judged because of their deception. They were judged because of their own type of theft. You see, you and I, as believers in Jesus Christ, are called to radical generosity. We're going to talk about that in a minute. But that doesn't mean that owning things is necessarily sinful. Working hard to buy and own things is honorable in the eyes of God. Working hard, being industrious, creatively contributing to culture and all the good and honorful things that come from that beautifully reflect the image of God for all of the world to see. But to steal from others does not honor God. And as with most of the commandments, there's both a negative side to this and a positive side. The negative is what is most obvious, that this commandment prohibits stealing. Or you could think about it this way. It prohibits intentionally disadvantaging your neighbor for your personal gain. So as with most commandments, the obvious is true. You ought not to take stuff that isn't your own from another person. Petty theft, grand theft, whatever it might be, theft is forbidden by God. Now, sadly, we live in a part of Baltimore where we experience theft from time to time. For some of us, we experience theft almost daily, and we have to kind of deal with that issue as a result of living uh, in this city. And what's been so interesting is my, my wife and I have remarked how, how interesting it is what people choose to steal from time to time. Uh, a couple months ago, my wife's, my wife's going to roll her eyes and I'm telling this story. A couple months ago, we, we bought a, a, a shiny uh, silver bucket for outside of our house. And, and that bucket was designed to be, uh, to hold something. Whenever we take our dogs for the walk and, and they, the dog does its business, we, we, we take a bag and we cinch it up. So then when we get back to the house, we, we throw it in that shiny bucket that's outside. And when that shiny bucket fills up, then we throw it in the regular trash. Well, one day we go outside and we discovered that that shiny bucket had been stolen And I looked at my wife and I said, nothing pictures human depravity more than thieves willing to steal a bucket of dog poop, (laughs) right? This is what we deal with sometimes. So the obvious is true here, but there are less physical ways that God deals with 
theft in our culture. There are students copying work, cheating on tests. Those are instances of theft. Taking credit or praise for work that was not done by you is an instance of theft. There are an infinite number of white-collar instances of theft and stealing in our world. Cheating on taxes is a form of theft. Anytime, really, we gain profit at the expense of others is a form of theft. Anything that steals the humanity of another is a theft. It's a threat to a well-ordered society. Imagine the Egyptians had stolen the humanity away from the Israelites. So now the Israelites were not to repeat this same error. But if we broaden this idea to the bigger concept of the commandments, we realize that the implications of this are far deeper than we originally like to think. See, the Ten Commandments establish the importance of loving God and loving our neighbor. So the Apostle Paul, in Romans chapter 13, expands on this idea. He writes, The commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and all any other of the commandments are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is fulfilling the law. You see, this broadens our understanding of stealing here. In a sense, any time you intentionally disadvantage your neighbor for your own personal gain, you have broken the Eighth Commandment. Any time we step on another person to get ahead— Anytime we celebrate another's disadvantage because it puts us ahead. Anytime we may elevate our advancement over the advancement of our neighbor. Anytime we place ourselves at the center of our ambition, ignoring our neighbor, we violate this commandment. Might be thinking, can't we just go back to the simple understanding of what this commandment means? This is far more extensive than what I bargained for. But with every negative, there's also a positive. So the negative behavior is condemned, but the positive behavior is affirmed and celebrated. So what is the positive side of this? Well, it's intentional love. It's advantaging your neighbor in ways that will cost you. There's an important point that, it's, that we need to make whenever we think about this. See, the Bible affirms hard work. It affirms the right to have personal property. We talked about that before. It affirms ownership, but it calls us to think about how we own things in a different way. See, the Bible calls us to this thing called stewardship. Stewardship is the understanding that the things we own, you can put that in quotes, are good gifts that are given to us by God that he calls us to steward. And we get this confused all the time. And when we do, we wrongly often take credit for so much of what we have. A couple weeks ago, I I had the opportunity to go to a a coaching clinic. And 
Uh, it talked about how to coach athletes from, from novice runners up to elite runners. And there's a whole other part of my life that this applies to. And, and I enjoyed it for that, uh, for that reason. And, and the, the folks that were teaching this clinic um, uh, were former uh, Olympic coaches. So they were really uh, engaging uh, instructors. And I can remember at one time during the clinic, one person raised their hand and they said, they asked this question. They said, what is the most determinative factor of an athlete's success. They were trying to sum up everything that we learned in one weekend. And these uh, professional coaches said this. They said the thing that most determines an athlete's success is that they pick their parents well. Now, it was a joking way to say that the most determinative factor in an athlete's success is something that is fundamentally outside of their control. You see, friends, we take or steal credit for so many things that at the end of the day are fundamentally out of our control. Much, if not all, of what we have is given to us. The professor who masterfully instructs his or her classroom does so through gifts given to them by God. The athlete who runs in a race is given that skill and ability and process by the hand of God. The financial planner is given a mind by God that helps them strategically invest their money and other people's money. You see, C.S. Lewis wrote this in Mere Christianity. He said, every faculty you have, your power of thinking or of moving your limbs from moment to moment is given you by God. If you devoted every moment of your life exclusively to his service, you could not give him anything that was not, in a sense, his own already. See, friends, in our arrogance, we take credit for all of this when almost all of it, if not all of it, comes from the hand of a gracious God. And so, someone who looks at life through this lens thinks not like an owner, but instead like a steward. My money isn't really my money. It's God's. My time isn't really my time. It's God's. My possessions aren't really my possessions. They're God's. My skill, my acumen, my cultural moment, my familial context are all gifts given to me by God. I don't really own these things. They are gifts that are given to me by God to steward them. So hoarding them for myself or hoarding them for ourselves is not what God intends. So what does it mean for us to actually steward these things that God has given us? Well, it means to intentionally advantage your neighbor in ways that cost you. And this is what it means to honor this commandment. One writer said that owners have rights, stewards have responsibilities. Another author said, God owns everything. We are simply managers and administrators acting on his behalf. In fact, to act like owners is ultimately to violate the eighth commandment. It is in many ways stealing the giftedness that God has given us and using it only for our own personal gain. 
So to live out the Eighth Commandment is to live a life of stewardship. We are more concerned about advantaging our neighbor than we are about advantaging ourselves. We care more about the welfare of those God puts on our path more than our own welfare. In a self-obsessed, borderline, narcissistic, big-me culture, God's people are called to something different. They are called to radical generosity, to radical neighborliness. In fact, 1 John 3 says, But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Think of the Good Samaritan. He didn't let his religion or his busyness get in the way of caring deeply For the man injured on the Jericho Road, instead, he inconvenienced himself and gave in costly ways. He becomes the definition for what it means to be one's neighbor. Friends, I don't know about you, but I want to moderate all this. I want to soften it in some ways when I think about my own life. I'm okay with being generous. I'm okay with being neighborly, but the drift of my own heart is to do these things in very easy or, self way, or selfish ways, to, to resist loving in the costly way. But that's exactly what God calls us to do. He calls us to be defined by intentional and costly love for our neighbor, to inconvenience and disadvantage yourself for the sake of others, to love in costly ways. This is what this eighth commandment calls us to do. It forbids us from stealing but it also calls us to love others in radical and costly ways. Friends, really, this is what the Bible is all about. It's really a book all about radical and costly love. Because the scriptures tell us that the price of our rescue would require a great sacrifice. And so God chose to give that sacrifice. He chose to, came, to come down. He became one of us. He disadvantaged himself, taking the form of a servant and had his life stolen from him. You see, our sin to be forgiven demanded that great cost. And it was a cost that Christ willingly paid to be restored to us. Friends, if you've never experienced this grace and this forgiveness, then flee to Christ in faith. Take the eyes of your heart away from yourself and your performance and instead look to Christ, the ultimate neighbor. But friends, if you are Christ's, if you're one of his own, then know that you have been given gifts. You've been given gifts and talents and passions. You've been given resources and intellect, money, possessions. Spend all those things radically and in costly ways on behalf of others. But always remember that the greatest gift that he has given you is ultimately the gift of himself. Let's pray.